On a couple occasions at bedtime, uh, my oldest son, Soren, who just turned six, has asked me this question. Daddy, where was I before I was born? Now, that's some heavy-hitting ontological question at, at, at nighttime. And so he's asked us a few times. And what I'm trying to do is help him see that the Bible actually speaks to that question. The Bible actually helps us answer that question, where was I before I was born? And so we've done a little bit of time in, in Psalm 139, where King David writes, all the days ordained for me, O Lord, were written in your book before one of them came to be. So I say, buddy, you were in God's mind before one day of your life. God had you in mind. He thought of you before you were ever born. Based on the authority of the Bible, we can see that God always has his people in mind. He knows them. He remembers them. He intervenes on our behalf. God always has his people in mind. And we see this glorious truth in our sermon passage this morning as we continue our series in the book of Genesis called God the Creator and God the Redeemer. God the Creator and Redeemer. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. In this series that we began back in January, we're uh, trekking across the contours of Genesis, not all of it, the first 11 chapters. And so here we are in chapter 8. You can find that on page 6 on the Bibles we've provided. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give free Bibles away. So there are some in the lobby on the bookcase, uh, some black hardback Bibles. Please take one if you have a friend who needs one. By all, need, by all means, uh, take one for your friend as well. Uh, Genesis chapter 8, I'm going to read the whole chapter. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again sent forth the the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. 
Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then Noah said, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Three movements in this passage, Genesis chapter 8, that we're going to walk through. First, promise kept. Then worship given, and then thirdly, promise made. Promise kept, worship given, promise made. And here's the, the idea that we're driving to this morning. God keeps his promise, and we respond with worship. God keeps his promise, and we respond with worship. We use worship a lot in the church. This is a worship gathering, and it's healthy to define what worship is. You can think of worship as a rhythm of revelation and response, God's revelation and our invitation to respond. Worship is a rhythm of revelation and response. So God reveals his character, his faithfulness, his promise-keeping identity, and we beholding his faithfulness respond with worship. That's what we see here in Genesis chapter 8. God is proving himself a promise keeper. And Moses, and Moses writes of Noah that he worshiped. He worshiped. God keeps his promises and we respond with worship. And so first, the, the, the largest movement is promise kept. We see this in verses 1 through 19. And we see God's promise-keeping character showcased here in these 19 verses. Uh, Dave Raffensperger, one of our elders here, uh, preached an excellent sermon last Sunday. Very helpful. If you've not had a chance to, to, to hear that, I'd encourage you to just go back on the website and listen to that. Very encouraging, very edifying as he unpacked the flood narrative in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. We see this cataclysmic act of judgment on the evil of humankind. Devastating judgment falls upon humankind as a result of their ongoing 
rebellion. Every inclination of men and women's hearts was only evil all the time. And God grieves over that evil. And it reaches a tipping point where then he instructs Noah to build an ark larger than a football field. Build an ark would have taken years, but obediently build the ark. That is going to be your salvation vessel. So Noah, likely in the face of mockery and ridicule from his own countrymen and women, obediently prepares for the day of judgment. And finally, that day of judgment comes and falls. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, eight total people and a host of animals are spared. They're buoyed up in the waters of God's judgment, a little vessel, as it were, on a watery abyss. God speaks of this judgment by way of a promise in Genesis chapter 6. This is what he said, he foretold to Noah. Genesis 6, verses 17 and 19. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But there's hope in the midst of the judgment, isn't there? But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive. You see the promise of life in the midst of death? You hear this glorious promise. In the midst of judgment, God will provide a way of salvation. In the midst of death, God is going to preserve life. And now as we turn to Genesis chapter 8, Noah and his family are floating in the ark in this vast watery expanse. And they have been floating for 150 days now when we turn to Genesis chapter 8. Imagine the sights and the smells. Imagine the anticipation, 150 days with your wife, your sons, and their wives, eight total people, and a host of animals. Just imagine the anticipation of opening that door of the ark and getting out. There are 150 days. What is Noah and his family thinking? They're likely thinking the thoughts of David in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord? Just, just try to kind of approximate to what we see in the text. Try to work to situate yourself in the characters of the, the Bible. They're anticipating release. How long, O Lord? Will you forget us forever? And it is strategic the very first sentence that we read in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 is this. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were there with him in the ark. 150 days deep into this, when they're tempted to wonder, what's going on? Have we been forgotten? How long shall we float? But God remembered Noah and all the beasts. What a wonderful truth. God has his people in mind. He always has his people in mind. He never forgets their plight. He knows, he sees, he's invested, and he will intervene. You just do a little word study or concordance study on God remembering in the Bible. God remembering in the Bible. What you will find is his love 
his loyalty, and his intervention. God remembering is code language. It's set up for God showing his steadfast, loyal love and intervening on his people's behalf. And so here's just a, a, a trace, brief tour. We see it here. We see it also in Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. God remembers Rachel, Jacob's wife, in her barrenness, and she gives birth to a son named Joseph. In the midst of her trial and waiting, God remembers Rachel, and then God intervenes. And she conceives. Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. God's people are ruthlessly enslaved in Egypt. They cry out to God for help. And the text says God sees, God hears, God knows, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what did he do? He intervenes. The very next thing he does is he raises up Moses, a deliverer. God remembering is preparation for God intervening. Fast forward into the New Testament. Mary, the mother of our Lord, after hearing this wonderful, miraculous news that she's conceived the Christ child, sings this song. The Lord has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Throughout the storyline of the Bible, God's memory is associated with God's mercy. So when you do that concordance study, you do that thematic study, God's memory is going to be tied to his mercy. His remembering is the setup for his intervening with love and mercy. Here's how God intervenes in verse 1. He made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. This is an unmistakable link to God's work in creation in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. What do we see in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2? The Spirit of God hovering over the waters like an eagle hovering over her eggs, waiting for them to awaken and hatch. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters, ready, preparing for creation to come forth, bringing creation forth. The word for spirit, wind, breath in Hebrew is all the same word. There's some ambiguity here, but this is an unmistakable tie, a link back to what God did in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters in preparation for creation. Now, that same word, ruach, but used of wind, is blowing over the waters, drying them in preparation for recreation. Those created things on that boat are going to emerge, a, a recreation of sorts. Same activity, God the Spirit, God his wind blowing. Genesis 1, creation, Genesis chapter 8, recreation here. Unmistakable, hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1. He makes a wind blow over the earth and the waters subside. The rain ceases and the water begins to recede and the ark comes to rest on a range of mountains called the mountains of Ararat, likely in what is modern-day Armenia and eastern Turkey. There's a, a range of, of mountains there. I'm not entirely sure, but likely that's where the ark came to rest. Uh, 
And embedded in that mountain range, Noah now prepares a little reconnaissance mission with some of the birds aboard. He first sends out a, a raven and then followed by a dove to see and learn of the survivability of the land. What, what's its condition? Can we open the roof and go out? We see this long section here, verses 5 through 16, 17. The aim of Moses, the author, is to show the waiting and the time. Notice all the references to days and months and the years of no. It's, this is taking time. The water receding takes time. It's a gradual process of the land drying out. It heightens the anticipation of the characters on board the ark resting on that mountain range. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Noah patiently waits for God's timing and he faithfully trusts in God's word. The best thing you can do in a period of waiting is to trust God's timing and to trust God's word. The safest place that you can be. Don't take matters into your own hands. That's our temptation. That's what gets us in trouble. That's what happened in Genesis 3. We're taking matters in our own hands. In the midst of a long season of waiting, continue to trust in the faithful word of your Lord. How might you find yourself in a position of waiting today? Trust God's timing. Trust God's word. Well, finally, the dove that Noah sends on reconnaissance doesn't come back. He, life has reemerged on earth. This freshly plucked olive leaf, signs of sprouting up and of life. One last sending out of the dove, and she doesn't return. We read in verses 14 and 15, In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives, with you. The timing here is important. The second month, the 27th day of the month, of the 601st year of Noah's life. When did they go into the ark and the waters began to fall? The 600th year of Noah's life, the second month, the 17th day. Just over one year. It's 10 days over one year they were on the ark. Imagine it. Imagine it. The waiting is now over. God says, verse 17, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. If you've Read along in Genesis, that ought to sound very familiar. Where do we see that language? Creeping things, swarming, teeming, moving about the earth. It's all creation language from Genesis chapter 1. This is a recreation after judgment. Spectacular deliverance. Spectacular emergence from the waters of judgment. Author Derek Kigner writes, Noah and company step into a virgin world washed clean by judgment. 
the awful nature of that cataclysmic judgment has also served as a means of washing the world anew. And Noah and his family reemerge unscathed. God has been true to his, his word. He has brought judgment and salvation. He has remembered his people. He has kept his promise. Friends, God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. His word can always be trusted in. You can set your feet in life firmly upon the truth of God's word. Nothing else has that kind of stability. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. If he says it, it will come to pass. In his time, yes, but it's going to come to pass. You are safest when you're resting upon his promises. Promise kept, followed by worship given. In verse 20, let's look together at what Noah does in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. What is Noah doing here? Noah is worshiping. The altar that he builds is, is a place of, of worship. Gratitude, yes, for God's goodness to them and preserving them, absolutely gratitude. But take it a next step as well. It's atonement as well. The altar was a place of sacrifice. And so what we see here is, is atonement, burnt offerings being given, offered up to the Lord. Remember, in Genesis chapter 7, there's an interesting section that Dave unpacked about seven pairs of clean animals boarding the boat. All the other were just pairs, but now there's seven pairs. Why? Preparation for sacrifice. Some of those clean animals will be offered in sacrifice when they got out of the boat. Offered in worship. Moses, the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. Moses is pointing us to atonement through these burnt offerings. We read later in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, worshipers at the tabernacle, that place of worship, they shall lay their hands on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for his or her sin. These animals, these clean animals, unblemished the worshiper would come and lay hands on as a picture of transferring sin from you to the animal and that it is your substitute. It is sacrificed, making atonement, turning God's wrath away from you. And it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That word pleasing indicates soothing and peacefulness and tranquility the word is related to Noah's name. Noah's name means rest or, or relief. And this word here for, for pleasing aroma sounds like Noah's name. It's an intentional wordplay. Because Noah, through his leadership, through his trust and obedience in the Lord, through his offering of sacrifice, has brought peace and tranquility between those eight people and God. This is the nature of atonement, burnt offerings. 
make peace with a holy God. Temporary peace as it was in the Old Testament, it was a shadow that would give way to the substance in Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate atonement. This is speaking to peace with God through atonement. We're going to see that human nature doesn't change here. We read of it in verses 21 and 22. There's, there's still had the intention, the inclination of evil. Yet there's something different here. There is sacrifice instituted here. Burnt offering, atonement, such that sinful people can have relationship with a holy God, can have peace with God through atonement. The wonderful decade-long ministry of Billy Graham, he's written a helpful book, Peace with God. The nature of Billy Graham's preaching, eight-decade preaching ministry, was to invite people to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only sacrifice, the only atoning sacrifice that can make peace between human beings and God. Peace with God. Read his book. Human nature has not been changed by the flood. Look with me at verses 21 and following. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The flood didn't change human nature. Original sin is still there, and it will cascade on to every generation since. But there is a change here in that God is accepting atoning sacrifices that can make peace with human worshipers and himself. They're still evil, yet there's sacrifice, there's atonement here. It's an act of worship. In spite of the human propensity to sin, atonement through sacrifice is possible to provide peace between God and human beings. That is glorious news. This is the nature of the gospel. The only way that you and I can have peace with God is by trusting in Jesus Christ, the atoning sacrifice that he made at the cross. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, justly deserving of God's displeasure. We deserve judgment. Yet Christ came and stepped in and received all the judgment for us. There's none left over. He drank the full cup of God's wrath. He set it down. He drank it dregs and all, the yucky stuff at the bottom. He drank it all and set it down and said, it is finished. No more wrath. He's absorbed it like a giant sponge, absorbing every ounce, every drop of God's wrath. Says it's finished. There's none left for you. It's only mercy cascading onto your head and heart. That's the gospel. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can only receive it as a gift. It's a lavish gift of God's love to us. It's the atoning sacrifice. That's what Moses, that's what Noah offers. That's what he gives in worship. Promise kept, worship given. Thirdly and finally, another promise is made in this exchange with Noah. Verses 21 and 22 and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. There's a promise embedded in this passage. What is it? It's not the reversal of the curse of the ground that we saw 
in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. It's not the revoking of that curse, but rather a promise that God will not send another physical flood, another catastrophic of this scale, a catastrophe of this scale. That's, that's what he's promising. Are there physical disasters today? Yes, there are. Awful as they are, they're localized. They're not in totality that we see here in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. They're, they're, they're localized. So God is promising never to do a flood-like event at that scale and size and totality. That's what he's promising. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will continue. I won't do that kind of catastrophe again. The final chapter of humanity is not going to end that way. We can trust that. In the midst of wars and rumors of wars, a nuclear holocaust, and global warming, and all these kinds of things that people worry about, an asteroid coming down, like, the world doesn't end that way. The world ends when God says it ends, and it's not from an asteroid coming down, it's from the Son of Man coming down on the clouds at the final trumpet blast. That's when the world ends. So when you hear all this stuff, look, I'm not, I'm not saying don't recycle and all this. We need to be stewards and exercise right dominion over, the, over the, the, the earth that God has given us. But beware buying into this fear-mongering stuff. God will bring creation to a close at a day and an hour that we do not know and that we do not expect, but it's going to be him coming down on the clouds Gathering his people from the four corners, judging the living and the dead. That's how, that's how the world ends. But until then, seed time and harvest, summer, winter, trust in the word of the Lord. He will bring it to its appointed close at his time, and it's going to look like a, the son of man coming on the clouds and the sound of the trumpet echoing forth. That's, that's how it ends. But until then, we see the earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold heat, summer and winter. Jesus uses the flood narrative, as Dave talked about last week, for preparation. We need to be ready for the day that the Son of Man comes, riding in the clouds. Because it's coming at a day and an hour that we do not expect. But if you're a believer in Christ, you're always expecting it. You're always to be sober-minded and to stay awake and be ready spiritually for his return. That's how he uses the flood narrative in his preaching. Be ready. Because it's going to come quickly at, an, at a day and an hour that we do not know. And the way that we are ready, the way that we prepare is by trusting in the Son of God who was slain for us as an atoning sacrifice, who at the cross spilled forth the flood of his love through the shedding of his blood in greater measure than the waters of judgment here in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. There's a wonderful hymn, wonderful hymn entitled, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean, written by a Welshman, William Reese. I'm going to read these two stanzas. Notice the parallel in flood language, but the beauty of what this flood is all about. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise, 
He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. The way that we prepare for the Son of God's return is to stand and being washed by his blood that flowed out like a fountain at the cross. Stand in it, receive it, trust it. It's your anchor, it's your identity, it's your only hope, but it's a steadfast and sure hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a chance to just walk through it, to read it, to seek to understand it, to apply it to our lives, to share it with others. God, stir us with this reality of you are a God who remembers your people, who thinks of your people, who has foreordained a plan for your people who will trust in you. Lord, on our dark and difficult days, May we rest in your promises, trust in your timing, believe in your word. God, I pray for some who have not yet trusted in you and your, your good promises, uh, that today would just be a, a next helpful step of looking to you, understanding you, and by your grace, coming to believe in you. Empower us, Lord, to live well in this life in light of your return. In Jesus' name, amen.